Hi guys, this is Cobain. Today I want to give a genuine Bible bite that is a relatively short video, though of course who knows how long it will turn out being, but I do anticipate this being very short. Um, if you are not already a patron, please consider becoming a patron. Uh, when pa Patreon makes native video uploading available, I'll be able to guarantee ad-free copies of all videos on Patreon. Also at the top level, there is a guaranteed hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion. That's for $20 a month. Um, and then there's some exclusive content for the other levels as well. So that's what really enables me to keep doing this stuff. So if you appreciate this content on a regular basis, uh, please take that under consideration. If it is within your financial means. Uh, so what I want to talk about a little bit today is the immediate aftermath of Israel's journey through the Red Sea. So we have Israel's exodus out of Egypt that comes to its climactic moment in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, you'll remember what happens is that God divides the Red Sea into two and he leads them through uh, by his own glory cloud. And we are told that God's glory was such that it lit up the night and that the waters were divided so that it was immediately on Israel's right and immediately on Israel's left. So the way of the Lord was opened. Israel had to follow the Lord and they could turn neither to the right or to the left. And I hope what you're beginning to see is that this constitutes the essence of obedience to the Torah. That is, following after God's own pattern of activity such that one is exalted to a higher mode of life. And that is what happens to Moses himself as the ideal Israelite, who is transfigured by the glory of God, such that just as God is veiled behind the Holy of Holies for Israel's protection, so also Moses' face is veiled for Israel's protection. And just as when God descends on Sinai, Israel draws back and is afraid, so also Moses descends from Sinai, Israel draws back and is afraid. So we see this major theme throughout the Torah of obedience to the Torah being a participation in this uncreated mode of life. Indeed, when we go to the prophet Ezekiel, we find that God is sitting on his throne and yet he is infinitely swift. The Spirit of God is in the wheels of his divine chariot. And just as God flies towards Ezekiel and the Spirit is in those wheels, when the Spirit enters into Ezekiel, Ezekiel begins to fly around. We're told that God grabs him, picks him up, moves him from place to place. And Ezekiel's prophetic calling by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the paradigm for the resurrection of redeemed Israel in Ezekiel chapter 37, where the Spirit of God enters into the dry bones and it reconstitutes them as living, resurrected, glorious selves. Ezekiel is called, not Adam, but son of Adam, the glorified Adam, when the Spirit enters into him. And just as the book of Ezekiel begins with the creation of the son of Adam, it ends with the vision of the eschatological temple under construction so that the son of Adam is led into his glorified garden city of Eden. Now in Exodus 14 to 15, Israel is born. And it is not just that this anticipates the waters of baptism. In fact, if you follow Exodus 14 out, you will notice that it begins with God's glory lighting up the night and then 
water is divided from water. That's the first two days of creation, and you can follow out the other five days of creation on top of that, showing that what is going on here is a birth from water into a new creation, into an exalted mode of life. And that new birth takes place by faith. Throughout the Pentateuch, there is an emphasis on faith as the crucial differentiating criterion clunky way of saying it, but it's the crucial um, point of differentiation between those who are heirs of the covenant and those who are not. Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness, meaning God made his covenant with Abraham to grant him a family and a land because Abraham trusted God. And it is from faith that a whole mode of life proceeds. It is from faith that you walk before God. And notice this language of walking before God. The Hebrew word for walk is halach. That's where we get halacha. We walk before God because we are following God's glory, turning neither to the right nor to the left, but following his exact and precisely delineated mode of life as it is expressed to us in his word. It says, The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. That belief is used, that faith is used at this crucial juncture is no accident. It is always at turning points where the question of Israel's inheritance of the covenant, where the question of their possession of the promised land, is at issue that the language of faith is used. You see the same thing in Exodus 4 and elsewhere. Well, then in Exodus 15, we have one of the four major poetic sections of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, as we've discussed before, following the insight of John Salhammer, is structured so that Genesis 1-11, to the primeval history, is the introduction of the whole thing. And it is constructed out of a series of small narratives and then a series of small poems, breaking, breaking the small narratives into bits. And then you have Genesis 12 all the way to Deuteronomy 34, large blocks of narrative that are um, interspersed with large blocks of poetry. Genesis 49, Exodus 15, Numbers 23-24, Deuteronomy 32-33. And these large poetic themes serve to direct the reader to the central themes that have been developed in the narrative. So Genesis 49, in the latter days, this is where we get prophecies of the messianic kingdom, a messianic seed taken from the line of Judah. Numbers 23 to 24, first we have the old Exodus, Numbers 23, and then we have a prophecy of the new Exodus, which will come in the latter days, which will recapitulate and glorify the events of the old Exodus. And in Exodus 15, we have an elucidation in poetic form of the character of the old Exodus. And we will note that the central feature is the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is forever, and the Lord will reign forever. You will see one of the threads which will tie with another thread and reveal the, messi or the divine identity of the Messiah. Because in the latter days, the messianic king will reign forever, and here it is the Lord who will reign forever. Because ultimately, just as Moses was said to be God to Pharaoh, the 
fulfillment of Moses, the one who is the prophet like Moses, who himself is a royal figure, he is like God to all mankind because he is in fact the only begotten word of God. Now after this poetic scene, we have an extremely important text. We have the uh, story of the better water made sweet, and then we are given an interesting detail about the place where Israel encamped. The story of the bitter water made sweet, Israel comes to Mara, named, meaning bitter. People grumble against Moses. They say, what shall we drink? He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Some translations say a log, but it's a tree. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now this is, if we have eyes to see it, an exposition of the character of the Torah writ large. Scripture begins with a description of a tree of life and a tree of knowledge. And in fact, books are made out of trees. You know paper is made out of trees. Books are made out of trees, and we should not forget the correspondence that exists between the scroll and the tree, because the two of them are presented in ways that symbolically echo each other. The book is that which makes us wise. God's commandments give life, the psalmist says. The Torah is life-giving, and it illumines the eyes. By the way, if you hear snoring, that's my dog uh, snoring. What's more interesting is the specific word that is used for show here. Now, the word used for show here is only used 17 times in the Pentateuch. And that in itself is very significant because 17 is one of those two numbers which represent the value of the Tetragrammaton, that four-letter name of God which declares and exposits his character, the other one being 26. Now 17 and 26 represent the inner quality of the divine life, and Moses and the other prophets will weave 17 and 26 into their books at several levels so as to present the text itself as a dwelling place marked by the manifest presence of God. Indeed, the Torah is a revelation of that name which is presented to us so that we might know God. We are told throughout Exodus, God says in Exodus chapter 9, for this very purpose I have raised Pharaoh up that I might show my power in him and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. And then throughout the plagues, we are told not only that God wants Israel to know the Lord, but also that the Egyptians are to know the Lord. The declaration of the name is the precondition for anyone at all coming to know the Lord. We are later told that Moses knows the Lord mouth to mouth. They're engaged in conversation. This is the way in which two subjects are interrelated in communion with each other. And that is why Moses becomes a vessel of the divine presence because he is constantly engaged in this divine conversation. And the evidence of Exodus 12, where we're showed a mixed multitude of Gentiles coming out of Egypt uh, with Israel in the Exodus, tells us that God's desire that the Egyptians know the Lord is more than an empty promise. Isaiah 19 tells us that in the Messianic age, Assyria and Egypt, Israel's two great oppressors by the time of Isaiah, will be joined together in Israel when Israel becomes a blessing on the earth. In other words, that which is shown in part in the Exodus will be shown in uh, totality in the 
in the New Exodus. And the word show, which is used 17 times, specifically has the connotation of taught. And this is the center of the point that I want to make in this video. The Lord uh, taught Moses a log or a tree. In other words, he taught Moses where to find this tree. We are to understand that the Torah as a whole is the tree of life as well as the tree of wisdom. And it is when Moses throws this tree into the water that the water becomes sweet. It is then in this context that God makes Israel a statute and a rule. And it says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, do that which is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments, all the statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. This formula of I am the is one of the classic biblical formula for expressing an aspect of God's character. In the Gospel of John, we are told that Jesus comes to make known the name of the Father. He is the only begotten who is full of grace and truth a quotation from the Septuagint of Exodus 33-34, where God makes known his name to Moses as compassionate and merciful, or in Septuagint, full of grace, uh, uh, full of grace and truth. And Jesus uses seven I am sayings in the Gospel of John, and seven I am the sayings. Another, like, it begins with I am the bread of life, it ends with I am the vine, from bread to wine, from potron to eschaton, from beginning to end. The Eucharist is, of course, both bread and wine because it is the totality of God's relationship and engagement with and through the human family. But here we see that God's character is, I am the Lord, your healer. Moses has taken a tree representing the Torah, representing the teaching of God, and he has thrown it in the water. Israel is to drink this water and they will become like that which they drink. Just as the water is united to this tree and is so sweetened, so also Israel is united to that water which they drink and is sweetened in turn. We see in Exodus 17 that, Mo or that God stands before the rock which Moses then strikes. Here again we have something associated with a branch or with a tree which then strikes God. God stands before the rock. Moses strikes the rock with God standing right there and it gives forth water. Just like Moses uh, uh, paints blood on the doors of Passover and God protectively covers them over during the night in which death grips Egypt. And then we're told that Israel came to Elim, this is verse 27, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palms, and they encamped there by the water. So this should not be that hard to interpret. 12 clearly refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. And what we've just said, just as Israel, the tree is united with the water, the water is sweetened by the tree, and then Israel is united with the water, and Israel is sweetened in turn. Well now, Israel becomes a 12-fold spring, and they are to give life to 70 trees. So we've got one tree. That's how it begins. One tree. It's thrown into the water. And now it's giving birth to a whole forest. We see this going on in the prophets. When Isaiah speaks of the Messianic age, he speaks of the wilderness becoming a blossoming forest. So we see that in the Messianic age, it's not so much that we move through the wilderness to come to the promised land, but rather that we live in the wilderness and make it into the promised land by the Holy Spirit. 
because the word that does not return void but accomplishes that by which God purposes through it, that is the word of God who is Jesus Christ who comes in the spirit and makes new life in the world through us by that same spirit. Now these 70 trees are the 70 nations of the world or they're a representation of the entire human family. We know that because in Genesis chapter 10, we have the original division of the nations, and to count them up, it's 70 nations precisely. Now, as a kind of bonus point here, if you read Genesis uh, according to the, um, these are the generations of structure. There are a couple, these are the generations of, or toledoth, which are paired together. And that makes sense because on certain creation days, there are two actions that are carried out. So this is discussed in James Jordan's Trees and Thorns. But if you follow that out, and this isn't a rock-solid thing, but I think it's pretty, uh, there's a pretty good case for it, then the Table of Nations actually corresponds to the first half of the third, uh, or the second half, rather, of the third creation day. So what has happened right before uh, this narrative, well, we have had the flood, and the third creation day begins with a separation of land and sea. So, of course, the flood, we have a new separation of land and sea with the uh, drying up of the floodwaters. And then you have the uh, fruit trees, fruit-bearing fruit, and so you have 70 nations here, and that corresponds to the 70 palms here in Exodus chapter 15. So Israel is sweetened by this tree, and then they become sweet they become springs of water and they thus give life in turn to the nations of the world and the reason that they're giving life to the nations of the world in the first place is because god is engraving his own name on their heart after all that is the underlying logic of this whole passage the lord showed moses or taught moses a tree and Moses threw that tree into the water, and the water became sweet. This all occurs in response to Moses crying out to the Lord, in response to Israel's complaints to Moses and their complaints to God. This tree is his answer. And that tree is associated with the number 17, because that's, uh, that's the number of times that the word for show or for teaching is used. That is the name of the Lord. And we see many texts that the name of the Lord is that which dwells in the angel of the Lord. The name of the Lord is that which is embooked and textualized in the Torah. The name of the Lord is that which dwells in the Holy Temple. And all of this actually goes back in an interesting way to Genesis uh, 12. Genesis 12, you've got the original call of Abram. Uh, and God tells Abram that he will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That, in turn, kicks back to the end of the flood, where we're told that Noah comes out of the ark, which, remember, is a treehouse. It's made out of trees. This is an architectural uh, working together of trees. Noah comes out of the ark, and it says all the animals come out by families. And then... God blessed them. So we have the families of the earth being blessed in Abram. And Genesis will end with Joseph as a new Noah who has built an ark not to, not to save a remnant, but to save actually all the nations in their totality. But for our purposes right now, I just want to call your attention to what happens in uh, chapter 12, verse 6 of the book of Genesis. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, 
to the oak or terebinth of Morah. And verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Dear seed, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country in the east of Bethel, the house of God. He pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai in the east. He built an altar to the Lord and called upon or called out the name of the Lord. Now, just a few verses earlier, we've been told about souls. This is the literal rendering. The souls that Abram has made or created in Haran. Now, the traditional reading of this text is that it speaks about Gentiles who have been converted to the name of God, who have been converted to the service of the one God by the preaching and ministry of Abraham, and that is the correct reading of the text. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak or terebinth of Morah. Now, Morah is actually derived from this word that we've been talking about, this word for teaching, the oak of teaching. This is the tree of Abraham from which he casts out the word of God. He proclaims and sends out that name of God. And thus, he creates souls. The only reason Abraham can create is because he's speaking out the name of the one God, which is the creative principle or archetype of all things that exist. And immediately afterwards, we have the story of Abram's going down into Egypt and then coming back up again, a prototype, of course, uh, of the Exodus. It's immediately after this that we are told that there is a famine in the land. Famine corresponds to the formlessness and voidness of the pre-creation uh, world. Right after God created the raw material of the world, it was formless, void, and dark. It also corresponds to the recapitulation of creation week in Genesis chapter 2, where it had not yet rained and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Point being... Man is God's creative hand in continuing to develop and mature and mold and glorify the world. And the way that that is manifest in biblical typology and symbolism is in famine. Adam is first created, then God plants the garden, then God brings Adam into the garden. And how is famine overcome? It is overcome by the opening up of springs of sweet water which are made sweet by this tree which is cast into it. That is, by the tree which is the word of God, which turns Israel into a tree, which turns the nations in turn into trees. And thus, there is an exponential multiplication outwards, which is spoken of in other terms in the book of Deuteronomy. You see, the word in Deuteronomy for wealth, actually, in certain cases, is the same word for army. Abram buys land. Israel conquers land. Because it refers to an extension of effective dominion over the land. That's why we're told in Isaiah and elsewhere that the covenant people will possess or conquer the nations. Because they will be increased in their number. They will be increased in their effective capacity and that amounts to, according to the conceptual flexibility of certain of these biblical symbols, that amounts to world conquest, but also world prosperity. You lend, Israel will lend and not borrow. Well, Israel lends out their capital. The nations take the capital there. Themselves are righteous. They themselves are blessed. And thus, they are joined together with Israel in a single family relationship. This, that's far afield from what we started talking about. Uh, one final uh, thing, which I find really interesting, 
in Exodus is the numerical devices here. We've talked about gematria before. We've talked about how every letter in the Hebrew language has a numerical value. We talked about how there are different methods of counting these letters. There are a couple of them which are very frequently used, often together. So we talked about the tetragrammaton. It has a um, standard value. Then it the, the ordinal value is the same as the standard value, but then it also has a reduced value of 17. And both 26 and 17 are frequently used. So let's take a look at the gematria of the 12 springs. That is literally 2 and 10 wells of water. And then also the 70 palms. So the 70 palms is uh, 1,118. So this is 26 times 43. Remember how we said that the word of God here is the name of God? Remember how we said that what God teaches Moses, this word is used 17 times, i.e. the name of God. This is the presence of God, which is the principle of life and multiplication. That is why all of this stuff is working the way that it does. Because God himself is present in the Torah as a creative principle. And that is why Jesus is the living, incarnate, breathing Torah who is in us to be faithful. Do we overthrow the Torah by this faith? No, we establish it. Why? Because the Torah himself is in us, in uh, on our mouth and in our heart, as Deuteronomy 30 prophesies. It's the speech of God who is speaking in and through us and making us a new kind of self. So the 70 palms is 26 times 43. 26, this is the name of God. 43 is the 14th prime number and thus is a... A relatively common biblical symbol. Uh, as the 14th prime number, it's 7 times 2. You will remember that Nisan 14 is the day of Passover. So arguably we have a Passover association here, as it is only in the New Covenant that Gentiles are incorporated into the Paschal Feast. This is the one feast in the Old Covenant which they are not allowed to fully participate in. Um, they were allowed to participate in every other aspect of Israel's liturgical system. There was no such thing as a court of the Gentiles. Uh, but we have uh, 26 times 43. Undoubtedly, there is more specific significance to this number, but I'm just going to go to the 12 springs, Gematria. That's 2 and 10 wells of water. And 2 and 10 wells of water is 1,940. This is 5 times 389. So, 389 is a prime number. It is, in fact, the 77th prime number. And so it should be of obvious significance, especially when the last prime that we were talking about as a multiple was the 14th, 7 times 2. Well, here we have 77 as our relevant prime number. The Exodus itself is associated with sabbatical themes. It is presented as the narrative and historical basis for the observance of the Sabbath in the book of Deuteronomy. That is because the Sabbath commemorates and, uh, and, and brings us into God's creative purpose. And the Exodus, as we mentioned at the beginning of this video, is a reinitiation or a rebirth of God's creative purpose as Israel becomes the arm through which God acts. Israel goes through a creation week of its own. Just as every human being is born out of water, so also is Israel born out of water. Uh, just as the world began with God's glory lighting up the darkness, so also the glory cloud lit up the night before Israel's eyes. And so here we have 77 as a key multiple for Israel's uh, 12 springs. 
Why is it multiplied by five? Well, I don't think that should be all that difficult to figure out. Uh, we have the five book Torah, and five is going to be uh, one of the most common numbers associated with the five book Torah. Well, why did God arrange it so that there would be a five book Torah? Well, think about it. We've got five fingers, and the arm, the hand, is the instrument of dominion. This is how we directly move things around. So you want to build a house, you build it with your hands. We grow from priests, where we're learning, where we're listening, where we're, uh, where we're studying. This corresponds in the traditional schema to purification. Then we become kings. We move and shape things around. And we're active and energetic in relating to the world. It corresponds to kingship and illumination. And then finally, there is divinization, which corresponds to the prophetic phase of one's life, eldership, wherein one is glorified and one creates not with one's arms, but with one's word. One speaks out and shapes the next generation is one of the dimensions of significance that we see here. Well, the Torah teaches you how to live and rule as a king. Israel comes into the land. They have to learn how to manage the land wisely. They have to learn how to live in the land such that it does not rise up against them and destroy, uh, destroy them. Remember that God's judgments are never arbitrary. Rather, the world is wired in such a way that it naturally responds to faithful obedience. The world exists by virtue of God's creative self-extension of himself. And so to live in a way which is totally contrary to God's way of living is going to naturally produce a hostile reaction from the world. The land cried out against the murder of Abel by Cain, and it continued to cry out against the increasing violence until the earth was full of violence, and the earth literally rose up and destroyed the human family. The fountains of the great deep burst forth, the windows of heaven were opened, and everything collapsed because the world was wired in such a way that it reached critical mass. And it was only because Noah constructed a microcosmic representation of the world and was able to remake it in a sanctified form that we continue to live and exist today. So, Israel is the center of the human family. We're told in Isaiah 27, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom forth and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. But that only happens because of what happened earlier in the book. Because of what happened earlier in the book, Isaiah 6, Israel is whittled down to a stump and God says, let's whittle them down some more. And then in Isaiah 11, from the root of Jesse, from the stump of Jesse, there comes forth a branch which will bear fruit. And that branch ultimately fills the whole world with fruit. And it does so through what Isaiah calls the remnant of Israel, which is gleaned out one by one. And that remnant of Israel is that people who have digested the lessons which God has painstakingly hammered into this nation. God has created a consciousness, an awareness of what it means to be a human being, of what it means to live in the light of divine wisdom. In the time of Moses... It would not be taken for granted that an Israelite could speak the way that Paul speaks. The things that I want to do, I do not do. And I do the things that I do not want. That kind of awareness, that conscious distinction between these things which one feels enslaved to doing and those things which one genuinely delights in. I delight in the law in my inner being, Paul says, speaking in the voice of Israel in exile. 
It is only that people who has learned to truly love the Word of God and yet feel an awareness of inability to do it that can genuinely desire and value the gift of the Holy Spirit who puts to death the flesh and makes alive the Christian in a new way of being oneself. I really recommend you uh, check out this article called To See Themselves Sin. It was written by a student of Peter Lightheart. Um, uh, I bet you can hear that's the dog. Written by a student of Peter Lightheart. Um, it's on Romans 7. And I think it's a it, not only exegetically, but, but spiritually an extraordinary article. Um, please do remind me in the comments to post this in the description box or as a pinned comment because it's, it's an excellent it's an excellent piece. So that's basically what we have for today. Uh, Exodus 15:22 to 27 is a miniaturized symbolic representation of what it means for Israel to fulfill God's purpose. And so we see from the very beginning, it was always in God's divine purpose to heal the nations of the world. It was never Israel only. It is a an extraordinarily bad reading of scripture to you know say oh well it's only in Jonah and then Paul where we have the Gentiles coming in. No, from the very beginning Gentiles are quite central to the story and we have Moses marrying the daughter-in-law of a or the daughter of a Gentile and note the significance of springs here where does Moses meet his wife he meets his wife at a spring and there are seven daughters of Jethro and that is why in Isaiah 11 redeemed Israel in the messianic age when the branch from the root of Jesse comes forth and bears fruit well there are seven Gentile nations which are mentioned and earlier in the text we've heard about seven women who take the name of the one to whom they cling we need to be reading these things together and we will understand that Gentiles are central from beginning to end because Israel and the nations is created as a mutually interdependent dyad, which becomes the emblem of the church's Catholicity. God makes the one new man not in place of the two, as if he was just replacing something that came before, but out of the two. Jews and Gentiles are distinct, and they become the raw material because they are united in communion with each other in the new covenant. That gets to another issue, and... Uh, I will leave you with that today. 34 minutes, so <laughs> I guess it's pretty much what we what you've come to expect. So I will uh, talk to you soon.